It's Monday, January 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. There's a new type of hearing loss that is hitting people of all ages, and scientists are still trying to find out why. It's called hidden hearing loss, and it is not characterized by the traditional view of loss of hearing, that the organ just gets less adept at detecting sound. Instead, you can still hear fine, but the brain doesn't process the sounds clearly enough. Corinne Iozio, executive editor at Popular Science, joins us for what to know about hidden hearing loss. Next, a surge of new plastic could be on its way to the planet. 2020 will be a consequential year for plastic as the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries are pouring billions of dollars into opening new plants with the purpose of making tons of new plastic. Beth Gardiner, contributor to Yale Environment 360, joins us for more. Finally, Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for his annual rankings of the best and worst airlines. Using criteria such as on-time arrivals, flight cancellations, and more, the list is a measure of the efficiencies and dependability of the airlines. For the third year in a row, Delta has come out on top, and at the bottom of the list this year is American Airlines. Scott helps us break it all down. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. With hidden hearing loss, those hair cells might still be able to pick up the sound, but the message isn't getting to your brain. The synapse isn't jumping from the ear to the neurons. So it's essentially as if you have a working microphone with a frayed plug. Joining us now is Corinne Iozio, executive editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Corinne. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about an interesting thing that I, I really never heard of before. And then, you know, you read this article, and then you think, oh, my God, do I have this? It's pretty scary. It's called hidden hearing loss. Scientists and researchers are really starting to barely understand what's happening, uh, if not even completely. Maybe they don't really know completely what's going on. Basically, people are having trouble hearing in louder environments, try, really trying to discern certain things when things could get a little bit louder and it could have to do with breaking synapses in, in between your ear and your brain. Corinne, tell us a little bit about this. So this is, like you said, pretty much a newly discovered type of hearing loss. We typically associate hearing loss with aging, right? The way that your eyesight deteriorates, the older you get, so too does your hearing. And typically we've diagnosed that as a function of how well these tiny hair cells inside your ear pick up sound. You know, you test it the same way that you would with an audiogram, the same kind that you've been getting since you were going to the pediatrician. They play various frequencies at various volumes, and you raise your hand if you can hear the sound. But with hidden hearing loss, those hair cells might still be able to pick up the sound, but the message isn't getting to your brain. The synapse isn't jumping from the ear to the neurons. So it's essentially as if you have a working microphone with a frayed plug. Right. And so in, in, in controlled, quieter environments, such as with one of these tests, one of these audiogram tests, things are working properly. But when uh, things can get loud, you know, let's say you're, um, you know, in a busy conference room, certain things like that, or even a little bit louder than that, concerts and whatnot, little things start to, to go away. And uh, you can hear things, but you can't discern it. It's just like as if your brain can't pick out the thing that you are trying to concentrate on. It can't separate it from the din of everything else happening around you. So how did scientists come to find this new type of hearing loss then? So this was first documented in a paper about a decade ago in 2009 by a couple of Harvard researchers. 
they observed the phenomenon in the dissected ears of mice and have been working ever since then to try to figure out a way to diagnose and hopefully eventually treat this in humans. Because the challenge is, is that really the only way that they have found to accurately confirm that this is happening is in, you know, a specimen from something that's deceased. So it's like you can't study a live human to assess if they have this problem right now. Right. You have to take their whole ear out just just to be able to look into it. No, and, and then you won't be able to hear anyway. <laughs> right, exactly. And so what they're finding out through all of this, as we said, this is kind of new, they're still looking into it, is that people can get like a really loud sound in the ear, you know, uh, maybe an explosion that they were near, a gunshot, something really loud could trigger something like this. But what they're finding out is that it doesn't necessarily have to be that. It could be something a lot milder in the sound of a lawnmower, things like that, that could really trigger to, and start to fray these synapses. Right. And that's the thing. So because we can't really diagnose this, we don't have really good information about how widespread it is to so say I'm having trouble hearing and I go to the doctor, I go to an audiologist, they do that same old audio test on me and I could pass, but still be having this problem. So and so we don't know because of that, what type of exposure is the thing that puts us in danger, right? It could be a loud noise. It could just be, you know, prolonged life in the city or being a regular concert goer. Um, so what it, the upshot ends up being just like, we all need to be really careful with our hearing at this point. Right. Exactly. Uh, that's why they always recommend, you know, earmuffs or, or uh, earplugs, you know, if you're going to be going to loud concerts, things like that, just protect your ears at all costs. What are they doing to try to test for this now? Because I know there's a few tests that they can do something that's a little bit more in depth than an audiogram. So there's a test that's typically given to infants, right, who can't don't really have the language skills to do a typical audiogram. So they'll basically use detectors that they just put on your head to try to see if your brain is responding when certain frequencies hit your ears. But again, this is just diagnosing the symptom. It's not necessarily definitively saying this person has hidden hearing loss. But in the meantime, the order of the day is to just be really mindful of your sound exposure. If you're walking down the street and an ambulance or a fire truck goes by, plug your ears. You're going to be using power tools or a lawnmower or at a concert or any other place where you're going to be exposed to loud sounds. Wear the earplugs, even if you feel kind of silly about it. Corinne Iozio, executive editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. We hardly ever talk about where all this plastic is coming from. And in fact, plastic is largely produced by big oil and gas companies, the same companies that are driving the climate crisis that we are now facing. Joining us now is Beth Gardiner, contributor to Yale Environment 360 and author of Choked Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. Thanks for joining us, Beth. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. 2020 is going to be an interesting year for plastic. You know, we've done a lot of stories on the podcast, how we're living in a plastic world. Now we hear stories all the time about people are eating about a credit card size amount of plastic every year, or we see stories about plastic washing up in remote oceans and, you know, remote parts of the earth. It is everywhere. And there's going to be a surge of new plastic hitting the planet this year. And, and, you know, in the years after this, there's companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, 
that are ramping up their output of plastic and we'll end up seeing all of this stuff later. Beth, tell us a little bit more about this. You're absolutely right that we are we are just absolutely surrounded by plastic in every aspect of of our modern lives. But it seems to me like so much of the conversation that we have around this issue, the way we talk about it is so skewed towards the sort of um, you know personal choice, um, individual behaviors. What can we do to have less plastic in our lives? You know, or kind of how can we recycle more? And it's also, I think, skewed towards the sort of waste aspect where right. all this plastic is ending up. You know, we've all seen the horrible pictures of the the plastic gyres in the ocean and the, you know, fish that eat plastic and birds that choke on it and things like that. But it struck me that we don't hardly ever talk about where all this plastic is coming from. And in fact, just like you said, the plastic is largely produced by big oil and gas companies, the same companies, Exxon, Shell, Chevron, Saudi Aramco, that are driving the climate crisis that we are now facing. They all have what they call petrochemical divisions or subsidiaries. And these are companies that make chemicals and plastic out of derivatives of oil and gas. That's where plastic comes from. And what's happening is that some of these companies are starting to look to the future and they're realizing that if the world ever gets serious about dealing with climate change, it's going to mean that we're buying less oil and gas and they are ramping up their production of plastic and other petrochemicals because they see it as a revenue source in a, in a future where there may be less demand for their products. Really, we do it to ourselves. The demand for plastic is so high because it really is a versatile product and, you know, it helps in so many ways. But the environmental effects are really something that nobody really thought of were so bad until we're starting to see all of this now. Tell us why 2020 is so consequential because of all these new plants that are opening up. Uh, I know you focus a lot on this yeah. uh, shell plant that's going to be opening up pretty soon. So there's a lot in the pipeline right now. And one activist told me that this is really a key year because a lot of these big plastic production plants are sort of in the, the permitting process. They're trying to get permission to move forward. And we know that once they do open, you know, those companies will just sort of run them to the max in order to get as much revenue out of them as they can. Um, so there's a huge plant under construction outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, it's a $6 billion facility being built by Shell's petrochemical division, and it's expected to open in the next few years. Pennsylvania gave one of the biggest tax breaks in the state's history to attract that plant. How are governments reacting to this? Uh, you know, we know it's a problem. We're, we're trying to get it under control. But at the same time, we are in the permitting process of a lot of plants like this. They are trying to grow this stuff and look for other revenue streams for uh, for all this. So what are we doing? You know, mostly these projects so far are being allowed to go forward. Um, very often, the places where they're trying to cite them are places that are, you know, economically depressed and in, in need of jobs. Um, so there's always a tension there. But, you know, one thing that really shocked me about this story, and I'm 
an environment reporter. I didn't even realize this. You know, I think we tend to think of plastic pollution as being a separate problem from climate change. You know, it's another environmental mess, but it's not necessary. It's it's clogging up the oceans and all of that, but it's not necessarily adding to the climate problem that we have. But what I learned in in reporting this story that Shell Plastics plant near Pittsburgh is going to pump out as much carbon dioxide as 400 and something thousand cars. These ethane cracking plants making all this plastic are incredibly energy intensive. So that means they are incredibly emissions intensive, not just, you know, poisoning the the people who live nearby with all kinds of um, toxic pollutants, but also tremendous amounts of carbon dioxide and other global warming gases. So this is actually really deeply interconnected with the climate crisis. Well, 2020, as we said, is going to be a consequential year for more plastic coming to the planet. Beth Gardner, contributor to Yale Environment 360 and author of Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. So the top airline for the past year was Delta. They've, they've really invested a lot and made a, a really remarkable change um, to get dependable. Um, they think that's a competitive selling point, that, that dependability, reliability really does matter for customers. Joining us now is Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Good to be with you, Oscar. We're going to be talking about the 12th annual middle seat scorecard for the best and worst U.S. airlines for 2019. Uh, 2019 was a frustrating year for a lot of travelers. We hear these stories all the time of crazy things happening and flights getting canceled, people getting bumped. And then on top of that, crazy people in flights. So, you know, it's all over the place. But uh, you've been doing this for 12 years now, rating the airlines on a bunch of different data points. First of all, tell us what criteria you use to rate the airlines. So we look at things that we think really matter to travelers. First is on-time arrivals dependability of an airline. Um, We look at the percentage of canceled flights at each airline. We have a category that we call extreme delays, where we actually measure of the delayed flights, how many of them uh, were late, uh, more than 45 minutes, which really starts to impact people's schedules. And so the, the percentage of each airline's flights that were more than 45 minutes late. We also look at tarmac delays. That's been a, a big issue. We, we count through data at the Department of Transportation, the, the number of flights and look at the percentages uh, for each airline um, where they actually had a plane sitting out on the tarmac for two hours. We look at mishandled baggage, critically important for a lot of people, and bumping. What percentage of passengers actually get involuntarily bumped uh, by the airline? And then the final category are uh, complaints, complaints that actually get filed at the Department of Transportation. Um, found over the years that uh, actually a pretty good barometer of what kind of customer service each airline is providing. So these are really rankings based on the efficiencies of the airlines. I I noticed you wrote in your article, it's really not so much about opinion factors like seat comfort or, you know, that rude gate agent or something like that, or even ticket prices or fees. This is more about the efficiencies of the actual airline themselves. 
Yeah, I, I look at it as reliability, um, looking at the performance of each airline. Um, and, uh, and, and it's all data-driven. Um, and, you know, factors like seat, seat comfort or frequent flyer benefits or th- things like that um, is not good data uh, to really compare. Um, what, what may be comfortable to me um, may not be comfortable to you. So we, we stick to data and, uh, and we stick to really the things that the airlines can control. All right. Well, without further delay, please tell us who the top airline was for this past year. So the top airline for the past year was Delta. It's actually three years in a row for Delta. They've, they've really invested a lot and made a, a really remarkable change um, to get dependable. Um, they think that's a competitive selling point, that, that dependability, reliability really does matter for customers. Um, they were number one in on-time arrivals. They were number one the lowest um, percentage of, of canceled flights. Uh, really quite remarkable. I mean, Delta, two years ago in 2018, Delta canceled 0.9% of its flights. And wow. when you think about uh, storms, hurricanes, snowstorms, uh, they, they have heavy presence in New York. Atlanta is the world's busiest airport. To cancel 0.9% is quite remarkable. And then last year, they did better than that, and it was down to 0.7%. They've also virtually eliminated bumping people involuntarily off of planes. In a 12-month period, uh, with 160 million some odd passengers, Delta had nine wow. involuntary denied boarding ep- episodes. Um, nine people. That's a great over the number. same period. American bumped 15,000 people. Yeah, um, I mean that's a great number uh, to compare there. And for reference, you you mentioned American had 15,000 bumps. They actually came in at the very bottom of the list. They were ninth on that list. Yes, America was ninth. Um, they they've been uh, last in the in the scoring of uh, three of the past five years. Uh, American, it's quite interesting. They they've actually turned a, a lot of things around, but um, got hit very hard last year by uh, for about seven months of the year, including the the very busy summer travel season, um, with a, a contract dispute with their mechanics, and it was nasty. Uh, American went to court and sued its own employees federal judge agreed they were slowing down the operation. And so there were a lot of cancellations, a lot of delays, fewer airplanes available uh, for the airline. And so it was a really tough summer um, in particular for American customers. I'm going to run down through the list real quick. Number one was Delta. Tied for second place was Alaska and Southwest. Number four was Allegiant. Number five was Spirit Airlines, then JetBlue, Frontier, United, and at the bottom was American. I was surprised to see Spirit Airlines. I just hear so many, and this is just anecdotally, right? I just hear a bunch of bad news coming out of Spirit. This might be more on the pricing thing or, or you know, some of the factors that you didn't include here, but they came right in the middle of the pack for this <laughs> ranking. Yeah, no, and it, it's quite interesting. Um, Spirit was firmly in the bottom of our rankings for a while. They they haven't been in all that long. They haven't been big enough to have to report a lot of this data to the Department of Transportation, but they made a concerted effort to really turn things around. Um, worst in baggage handling, but now they're in the middle of the pack. Same with, with bumping. Uh, they, they had the third best on-time arrival rate. And, you know, they used to really not care about that. It was, you know, it was just, uh, we'll get you there when we get you there. Right. But they have realized, uh, because of all those stories you do hear, we all hear, that if they were going to attract new customers and grow, um, they had to get a better reputation. They had to perform better for their customers so they'd come back. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Great to be with you. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.